Cool. Well, I wanted to ask you guys a question. I wanted to ask if you could help me out this morning. I want to say a phrase, and I need you guys to repeat it with me, if that's okay, okay? So the phrase is contentment in Christ. There it is, written up for you. Made it real easy. Uh, can we all say that after the count of two? You ready? One, two. Contentment in Christ. That was pretty good, actually. Let's try it one more time, okay? One more time. Bear with me. Ready? One, two. Contentment in Christ. Okay, great. Now that you feel like you're back in elementary school, let's talk about what that actually means because discontentment is a disease that is rampant amongst humanity and especially those of us who live here in the Western world, right? We all struggle with discontentment from time to time. Comparison is the thief of joy, that's a, th- that's a quote that was made famous by Theodore Roosevelt. Comparison is a thief of joy. And that's essentially what we're going to be talking about today because comparison leads to discontentment, which leads to uh, ultimately envy. And then ultimately that leads to something even worse. We're talking this month about sins that lead to death. And we're talking about seven deadly sins. And as we go through these, this series, what we're looking at is really things that we struggle with as humans, that we all struggle with. What are the seven things that we struggle with as humans? And we didn't title this series, Seven Deadly Sins, or Seven Things That You Should Definitely Stay Away From, or anything like that. We wanted to call this series A Way Out, because what we wanted to talk about is the way out that we're offered in God. And to specifically examine each and every one of these things and say, okay, when it comes to pride, which we did a couple of weeks ago, how does God give us a way out? When it comes to lust, which we talked about last week, how does God give us a way out? When it comes to this area of envy, what's the way out? Now, envy is kind of a weird word, if you ask me. It's one of those words that if you say it a lot, it kind of, you're like, what are, what are we talking about here? Like, you know what I'm talking about? So, well, envy is a little bit strange. It's not typically something that somebody throws out in regular conversation, right? And so, I want to ask the question first of what is envy and also what is wrong with it? Well, let's start with the first question. What is envy? The dictionary definition that I have here says this, envy is a desire for another's gifts possessions, position, or achievement closely associated with jealousy. Not a surprise there, right? Essentially, if you boil it back, if you peel it back, envy is discontentment. And discontentment, if you pull that back, is the belief that God is not good. When we're envious, when we're discontent, we're essentially saying to God, God, what you've given me, my lot in life, what you've blessed me with is not enough. I was talking to a friend this week about this topic of envy, and uh, as we were talking, he told me a very interesting story. He told me that when his son was in high school, he was saving money to put, uh, he was saving money every month, putting it aside to buy a sprinkler system to put it in his backyard. And his son, they came into the summer, and his son needed a way to get around from point A to point B in the summer. And so he decided to sacrifice, to take that money that he'd been saving and to put it towards a car, a gift for his son. And so he took that, those funds, bought a cheap, reliable little car for his son, and his son was not happy with it because it wasn't, you know, the Mustang or the nice car that all his friends said that he could or should have. And he was discontent and he let his father know that and that incredibly wounded his dad. And essentially that's what we do with God. When we say we're not, we're not content with, with what you've given us, it's a slap in the face to God because he has blessed us all 
with so many things. And so when we look at this, we see that this deal with envy is not a new thing because that's essentially the problem Adam and Eve experienced in the garden, right? Think back all the way to the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve are there. Everything is perfect. And yet Satan comes along and implants this lie to them and tells them that God is holding out on them, that he's not giving them the same position or power that God has. And so they start to envy God and his position and they believe the lie and they eat the fruit and there we have the rest of history, right? All tied up there. Envy is an old, old, old problem that we all struggle with. So what does envy look like in our lives? I want to give you a couple of silly examples. Is that okay? So the first example I wanted to give you was one from my life. Uh, You guys know that I'm into mountain biking, right? I talk about that from time to time. So I have a bike wrapped up here on stage, and this is a mountain bike. Everybody is probably smart enough to figure that out. Okay, so this is a mountain bike. And when it comes to mountain bikes, you can upgrade pretty much every component on a mountain bike. Like anything on here can be switched out. Now there's one company that stands head and shoulders above the rest when it comes to upgrades and components. And it's this particular company that has made the seat post and the handlebars on this. They're called Envy composites, okay? They're all made out of really high-end carbon fiber, and they're super expensive, but they're really good at what they do. But what they do probably more than anything is produce an emotion called envy in our lives, right? I don't know if they were just like sitting around one day in their marketing room, and they're like, what should we call our company? Company, And they're like, oh, let's call it the emotion that we want to produce with people when they see this. So if I'm driving along, and I see somebody has, has a bike on their car rack, or they're on the trail, and I see this logo, it's very distinct. You can actually read envy in it if you try. There it is up on there. Uh, If I see that, I know that somebody's very serious about their cycling, okay? Because it's a high-end company. And it's, it's interesting how this is all tied up in this silly little sport of cycling that I'm into, Clever, right? Let's go to another example. I want to put a a shot up on the screen for you guys. This is from Aston Martin. This is their one of their advertising pictures for their family car. And uh, there's a whole bunch of yeah, there's a whole bunch of uh, things that we could latch our envy to here in this picture. Okay, so you've got the car. Obviously, that's very nice. Uh, But you've also got this like house that probably came out of Architecture Digest or something like that. Then you've got this family. It's like two kids, you know, and a dog. They're all happy. They all look like they're going on some sort of exotic vacation somewhere. They all could model for any company, you know, like, so they've got everything going on. There's a whole bunch of little things that we could latch jealousy or discontentment or covetousness onto in this simple little picture. That's what marketers do. Let's go to the next picture. Okay, these people, they're, they're kind of off in their little holiday world, right? They're, they're so tranquil and peaceful. They're having fun. They're smiling. They're in the sun. There's no kids. Uh, they're, they're enjoying themselves. There's a lot of things that you could latch your envy onto into this, next, into this picture. Now, before you go to the next picture, Rose, I want to explain it. Sometimes we're envious of people's achievements, right, of the things that they achieve. Maybe some of you would be envious of this next picture. We can go to it, Rose. This is the lady with the world's longest fingernails. No? Okay. I just put that in there to mess with you guys. Uh, (coughs) I don't think too many people are envious of that, but she is in the Guinness World Records. Let's get rid of that. That's going to make people sick or something if we get that out. Okay, thank you. Okay, so there's many different faces. I show you all of that to just kind of prove to you that envy takes a whole bunch of different faces. Those are just some silly examples of what it looks like. 
And as I mentioned, envy is not a new problem, and so that means that it's been addressed in the Bible, and it's actually addressed quite often in the Scriptures. And so we're going to turn to a very good story about envy, and it's found in 1 Samuel chapter 18. I want to give you a little bit of background as we're turning there. 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 1. As you're turning there... uh, This is a story that is the continuation of something pretty dramatic that's been going on. The two main characters in this story are a guy named Saul, who's the first king of Israel, and a guy named David, who is going to be the second king of Israel. Saul is a guy who was chosen to be king, but he's like totally shutting God out. He's denying God with his life and with his actions. And David is a guy who's being anointed, this young man who's been anointed and he's going to be the king in the future, but not yet. And what's happened here, we're right here at the scene after David has very famously gone and killed a huge giant, a guy named Goliath. And he's taken down this guy who's an enemy of God. And God uses him in an incredibly powerful way. And right after that, we're going to pick up the story of what happens next between David and Saul. And so let's read in verse verse 1 of chapter 18 of First Samuel. It says this, When David had finished speaking with Saul, Jonathan committed himself to David and loved him as much as he loved himself. Now, Jonathan is King Saul's son. And David and Jonathan go on to be like really good friends. They're BFFs for like the rest of their lives. They're really close and it's really a good example of what friendship can and should look like. And it goes on and says in verse 2, Saul kept David with him from that day on and did not let him return to his father's house. Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as much as he loved himself. Uh, Then Jonathan removed the robe that he was wearing and gave it to David along with his military tunic, his sword, his bow, and his belt. David marched out with the army and was successful in everything Saul sent him to do. Saul put him in command of the soldiers, which pleased all the people, and Saul's servants as well. As the troops were coming back, when David was returning from killing the Philistine, the women came out from all the cities of Israel to meet King Saul, singing and dancing with tambourines, with shouts of joy, and with three-stringed instruments. As they celebrated, the women sang, Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. Saul was furious and resented this song. They credited tens of thousands to David, he complained, but they only credited me with thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? So Saul watched David jealously from that day forward. So what do we see here right off the back of God using David in an amazing way, killing this giant Goliath? We see several things. We see that God's hand of blessing and favor was strongly on David, right? I mean, that whole list of things was pretty incredible. First of all, we see that David becomes best friends with the king's son. That's, that's awesome. Having a friendship like that is very valuable, let alone with somebody who's, you know, important in the, in the kingdom of Israel. Like, that was a blessing that God opened up that opportunity for that friendship. Then we see David continues to be successful in battle. Verse 5 tells us that he was successful in everything that Saul sent him to do. Not just most things, everything. David was also then put in command of the soldiers, the people like David, the servants like David. Essentially, David had it going on. He was the man. He was the man of the minute. And to top it all off, the people start singing this song that is hugely offensive to Saul. So how does Saul react? Well, I think he reacts like 
a lot like you and I would react if we were in Saul's position, right? It tells us in verse 8 that Saul was furious and resented the song. And then on in verse 9, it tells us that Saul watched David jealously from that day forward. Now, if you go in and look at this particular scripture, it's kind of interesting because what it tells us is that when Saul looked at him jealously, what that means is that he looked at him with malicious intent. If you want another way of looking at it, when he looked at David, there was a burning in him. There was a color in his face produced by emotion. That is textbook envy, right? So let's pause for a second and think about this. Envy is something that we all struggle with from time to time. And, and envy is this uh, interesting thing because uh, we, we often don't think of it as being as serious as it really is. We don't think of it as being a problem that we really need to worry about. Uh, but, but when you think about it in terms of what the scriptures tell us, envy is evil because it separates us from God. And like all sin, it has negative outcomes. Listen to what James 1 tells us about sin in general. And this applies, of course, to envy. Verse 14 of James 1 says, But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desires. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when the sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. I don't know about you, but I find this scripture incredibly haunting. Because it's one of those scriptures that when you read it, you're like, Wow, they've taken something beautiful, conception, birth, new life, and placed this idea of sin and death in with it. It's, it's kind of grotesque in how it's, it's written. I, I think when I read it, it kind of makes me think of like a sci-fi movie or something like that because you've got this like image of something that doesn't belong together, right? That, that, that evil desire gives birth to sin and then that ultimately gives birth to death. And that means that envy, like all sin, is incredibly serious because it leads to death. Envy is serious because it leads to death. And if we were to read on the sad story about Saul, what you'd see is that that's true in Saul's life. If you read on through the journey, the long journey of Saul's life, ultimately his pride, his envy, his discontentment, his insecurity eventually lead him to death. So let's be honest with ourselves this morning. Envy is something that we all struggle with from time to time. But envy and jealousy are kind of an elusive thing. It's kind of like trying to articulate what they are or how they have a grasp on our hearts. It's often like grasping at oil. It's hard to do, right? You can't really get your hands around it. I don't think typically you get a, imagine with me, you wouldn't get a group of guys together, a group of Christian men who are in like an accountability group or something like that together, sitting down and kind of talking about their prayer needs. You wouldn't get one of them saying, well, I'm I'm really struggling with envy right now. Like that's not typically something that would come out of our lips because it's, it's subversive. It's beneath the surface level. But no matter who you are or what stage you are at in life, there is always an opportunity for you to be gripped with envy. And so I want to ask the question this morning, what are you envious of? Are you envious of your neighbor's possessions? There's a whole bunch of things that we could attach our envy to, the, the neighbor's new car or their house or their, uh, their swimming pool, their new floors, their kitchen, I don't know what it might be. But there's a whole bunch of possessional things that we can kind of attach our envy to. Or maybe you're jealous of someone who is in a different or better position than you in life. 
You know, maybe they're healthy and you're not. Maybe they're, uh, they're making better money than you. Maybe they're young and you're old. I, I don't know. There's always an opportunity for us to, to gra- grapple with envy. Maybe you're envious of your co-worker's perfect spouse. They're always talking about their spouse who does this and does that and does whatever, and that's frustrating to you. Maybe you're envious of your friend's perfect lives on Facebook. As you look through and see their highlight reel, right, all the best of the best things that they're posting up, you're filled with envy. By the way, there's some interesting articles. There's been some studies that have been done lately that are showing that the more time that you spend on Facebook, proportionally you are much, much, much more likely to suffer from depressive symptoms the more time you spend on Facebook. Comparison is the thief of joy. And so I want to ask you that question. Do you struggle with envy looking at your friends' lives, looking at your friends' parents? Maybe your friends have parents who are supportive and loving and yours aren't. Maybe your siblings have children who seem to be just obedient and put together and you don't. Maybe you don't have children and that's what you're envious of. Typically, envy sounds like this. I wish I fill in the blank. I wish I had fill in the blank. I wish I was fill in the blank. And envy like this is poisonous to our hearts. There's a great movie called The Princess Bride, and in The Princess Bride, there is an incredible scene where you've got one of the villains, Vicini, in a battle of wits against the hero of the story, the man in the mask, who we later find out is Wesley. Sorry to ruin that for you. Uh, so they're in this battle of wits, and they're trying to fight kind of over these cups, and one of them is poisoned, and so they're kind of going back and forth. They eventually decide to drink. They drink the cups, and Vicini's like, ha, 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 I tricked you, I got you, and then he falls over dead, right? You guys remember that scene? And so he falls over dead because there was poison in both of the cups. Wesley had built up an immunity to the poison by giving himself a little bit each day. The reality is with sin, and especially with this envy thing, that I want you to know is there is no immunity to envy. Ultimately, envy will lead to death unless it's dealt with by the Holy Spirit. And so we have to continue to give ourselves over to God and to His work in our lives. The Bible makes it painstakingly clear that envy is not to be a part of the life of someone who is being regenerated by Christ. That's a fancy way of saying somebody's a Christian. Someone who's been regenerated by Christ is somebody who is changing to be like Christ day by day. As Christians, there's a continual process where we become more and more like Him, okay? And so what what the Scriptures tell us is that envy and somebody who is a Christian, those things don't belong together. Let me read you a couple of Scriptures. Galatians 5, 19. This is a sobering passage. It says, Now the works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality... Moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. I tell you about these things in advance, as I told you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's a sobering scripture, right? Will not, not might not, will not. Those who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Envy was in that list. Let's read on. James three sixteen tells us this. For where envy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every kind of evil. Envy 
and the Christian life do not belong together. Titus 3 verse 3 is talking about who we were before Christ came in and rescued us. It says this, For we too were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by various passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and detesting one another. So envy, like all sin, is very serious. And the question we need to ask ourselves this morning is, what's the way out? I don't want to just talk about envy and be like, okay, let's go. You know, we, let, let's talk about a way out. There is a way out. And if I was like a, I guess, um, some sort of like self-help guru, which I most certainly am not. But if I was, I would tell you, hey, well, let's look at the problem of envy. What's the antonym? What's the opposite of envy? And you would tell me it is contentment. And I might say in that circumstance, well, you guys just need to try harder to be content and then you won't struggle with envy. That doesn't last long. That's not helpful, is it? We're not about self-help here. Here in the church, and I mean the big church, when I say that, we're about Christ's help, not self-help. And so when it comes to envy, what I want you to see this morning is that the way out of envy is contentment in Christ. Remember that phrase we repeated earlier? That's because it's important. Contentment in Christ is the key to what we're talking about today. So what do we mean by that phrase, contentment in Christ? What does that look like? Well, in Christ we find contentment because of three things that we're going to talk about this morning. The first thing is this. We find contentment in Christ because He convicts us of envy. I want to tell you about something that's kind of interesting. When we're Christians, when we become a Christian, the Scriptures tell us that something mysterious and wonderful happens in that Christ's Spirit literally comes and dwells inside of us. Now, some of you in the room who are, may not be Christians or kind of trying to figure out this whole Christian thing a little bit, you're like, what in the world did he just say? Lives inside of us? Well, I know, I know that may sound a little bit far-fetched, but when the, what the Scriptures make clear over and over again is that His Spirit comes and lives inside of us. And if I can believe that God created humankind, if I can believe that He sent His Son to be born of a virgin and to be fully God, fully man, die on a cross, raised from the dead, I can believe that His Spirit lives inside of me, right? And so as I believe that His Spirit comes and lives inside of us, like the Scriptures say, that Spirit brings conviction and leading in our lives. For those of you who have walked the Christian life for a time, you would tell, you, tell other people that you sense God's Spirit leading and guiding you in your life. And one of the things, jobs of the Holy Spirit inside of us is to bring conviction and leading in our lives. Philippians 2.13 says it like this, For it is God who is working in you, enabling you to both desire and to work out His good purpose. As God's working stuff out in our lives, bringing conviction, bringing healing in our lives, we call this process sanctification. It's a big churchy word to just say that God's helping us, right? He's growing us, maturing us, regenerating us more and more into His image. Thankfully, being a Christian isn't a one-time deal. You don't just make this decision one day, he slaps a going to heaven sticker on your heart and you're good. No, there's a continual process of us becoming more and more like Christ. And the way that that works is his spirit is inside of us bringing conviction. And so when we struggle with envy, he's going to bring conviction to that and say, hey, that thought, that, that train of thought that you're taking right now is not honoring to me. It'll bring that conviction. Thankfully, Christ just doesn't bring us conviction. He also offers us a cure. That's the second fill in the blank there for you guys this morning. Christ teaches us contentment because he cures us 
of our envy. He doesn't just convict us of our envy, he also cures us of our envy. This is where we talk about the forgiveness of the sin, of sins that Christ offers us. Christ forgives us of all of our sins, including envy. When you look at the scriptures, it tells us that he takes our sins as Christians and wipes us clean, that it's as far as our sins are as far as the east is from the west. And this is where I have to just interject for a minute and, and, and explain to you that if you're not a Christian, if you're not a believer, what we're essentially talking about here is the amazing work that God does in our lives. We've got God over here, we've got us over here, and we've got this sin that separates us from Him. And without Jesus, who is fully God and fully man, we don't have a way to be in right relationship again. And yet what Christ offers us is forgiveness and grace through Him. So thankfully, God doesn't convict us. He also cures us of our envies. Listen to how Titus 3 puts it. We read this scripture earlier, verse 3, talking about our former struggle with envy. And then on in verse 4, it tells us, But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, it's talking about Jesus, He saved us, not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to His mercy, through the washing of regeneration, there's that word again, and renewal by the Holy Spirit. What he's saying is it's not by works of righteousness. It's not us being more content by pulling off our bootstraps up and being more content. What it's saying is the process here is God healing us, bringing conviction, us letting it go to God and Him healing us of our problems with contentment. We can and should find deep satisfaction Deep contentment in the reality that Christ has saved us and is saving us. Amen? The third thing that we see in Christ and the way that we find contentment in Him isn't just that He brings conviction, isn't that He just cures us, but He also coaches us in satisfaction. He gives us the example of what, the ultimate example of what contentment looks like in Jesus. If you want to know, hey, how do I live a content life? Now that I've, I've been convicted of my, my struggle with envy, now that I've been cured of my struggle with envy, how does he help me day in and day out with my envy? If you look to Jesus as your example, you will see a man who is completely content in who he is in the Father as, the, as God's son. Listen to how Philippians chapter 2 puts it. Verse 4, everyone should look out for the, not for their own interests, but also for the interests of others. Listen to this, verse 5, make your own attitude that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men. So he becomes a man in his external form. He, oh, and when he had come as a man in his external form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus was satisfied. Jesus is satisfied in who he is as God's child. And you and I too should find satisfaction in who we are as God's children. So what does this look like practically? Let me give you an example of what this looks like. And again, this is not a perfect example, but I just want to be open and honest with you guys this morning from my own life and my own experience. When we go back to Australia uh, from time to time, it's kind of interesting because I've got these friends in Australia that you kind of pick up with life with every couple of years, right? Because you don't see them for a few years and then you see them again. Well, it's always interesting, but 
when we go back home, some of my friends have been very successful in life. Successful, right? It's always kind of an elusive thing. But they, uh, some of my friends have these beautiful homes right by the ocean, okay, in Australia. And, uh, the, you know, they've got these good jobs and they've got these beautiful homes right by the sea. And, and sometimes, you know, as, as we're there and as we're looking around at all that's going on and we're like, I struggle with envy in that moment. Let me just be honest. I struggle. And I look at this stuff and I'm like, man, this is nice. Imagine if I had, you know, all that, that thought process begins. But as that happens, the Holy Spirit bring, has brought conviction in, that, in those moments. I'll be honest, it's happened more than once. In those moments, he's brought conviction and said, hey, this is their life. This is not what I've called you to. You don't need to worry about this. And in that moment, I've had to give it over to God and say, God, please, I'm sorry, you're right. Like, I'm happy with who you've called me to be distinctly for this life, and, and I don't need to look at their stuff. And so in that moment, he cures me of, of my discontentment, and then also I found he continues to coach me in moving forward in this. That's just a small practical example of what this looks like. Ultimately, as we see contentment is found in Christ, what I want you to see walking away is that love trumps envy. Love beats envy every single day. And we see this to be true back in the story of David and Saul. Remember we were talking about the two kings earlier? The first king of Israel, the second king of Israel? They both struggled with envy. I didn't really let on to that earlier, but we know that they both struggled with envy. Obviously, we read a story of, of Saul's envy, but a lot of you are familiar with the story of David's envy. David is many years later on. Saul's died. Um, many later, years later on, he's the king. He's up on the roof of his house, and he looks across, and just a thought crosses his mind as he sees a woman bathing, and he wonders who she is. He inquires after her. He finds out he, she is the wife of another man, and yet he takes her, sleeps with her, gets her pregnant, and then later on in this whole mess, he kills her husband. Here we see a perfect example of how just a thought, a desire, births itself in death, right, in David's life. And so we know that Saul and David both struggled in a major way with envy, but there's a vast difference between the two of them because David chose to, to take the way out that was offered by God and Saul didn't. That's the difference between the two. There's not much else other than that except that David chose to take the path that was offered to him by God, a way out that was offered to him. God sends a prophet to David and says, hey, buddy, I've seen what you did and it's not right. And in that moment, rather than being like Saul and being like whatever, David chooses to be broken before God and ask God to heal him and cleanse him of his sin. If you read, you can actually read what David wrote when he was processing all of this. How cool is that? It's like a little insight to thousands of years ago, this moment that God was dealing with. And that's found in Psalms 51. I want to read parts of it for you. Listen to this as a man who is being healed of envy and the envy that resulted in death. It says this, Be gracious to me, God. According to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion, wash away my guilt, and cleanse me from my sin. For I am conscious of my rebellion, and my sin is always before me. Surely you desire integrity in the inner self, and you teach me wisdom deep within. 
Turn your face away from my sins and blot out all of my guilt. God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore the joy of your salvation to me and give me a willing spirit. Then I will teach the rebellious your ways and sinners will return to you. The question we're left with this morning is this. Are you, am I, when it comes to envy in our lives... It's not a question of if we're going to have envy in our lives, when it comes to the question of envy in our lives. Are we going to handle it like David or are we going to handle it like Saul? If we deal with envy like Saul, we're not going to look to God for a way out and eventually envy is going to result in death. But if we look like David did to God for a way out, we can find contentment in Christ. And so I want to give you three practical ways to think about this as we, as we close. The first one that I want to give you is this. Some of you in this room here today need to look to God for the first time. Some of you are like kind of listening in on this conversation. And what you may have picked up on is this conversation really applies to Christians. If you're not a Christian... Uh, you know, envy is just going to be normative, right? It's just a part of life. Like that's, and the, you know, you can kind of try and deal with it, but there isn't really a, a, a proper solution. But when you are a Christian, what we're told is this is not to be a part of our lives. And so some of you need to get in a right relation and ha- a relationship with God and have this envy and all the other issues in your life dealt with by being in a right relationship with Jesus. And so I want to encourage you, if that's the spot that you're in this morning, to talk with the person who brought you along or to to come and talk with myself or Nick later on in the service. We'd love to talk to you about what it means to be a Christ follower and how he cleanses us of all of our sins, including envy, right? So I would encourage you to do that. Don't just listen to this and be like, oh yeah, cool, good deal. Let God work in your heart. Second place that you may be in today is that some of you are not in a place of discontentment right now. That you're actually in a pretty good spot in your relationship with God and how you're feeling about life. And if that's, that's where you're at, that's awesome. That's great. But I encourage you to just tuck away some of this conversation, to allow God to really just kind of coach you moving forward and how you continue to walk in that. Like I said, envy can kind of attack us at any time, at any point in our lives. And so continue to be aware of that and think through that, what that means practically. But thirdly, and this probably applies to most of us in the room, some of us are struggling with envy. And as I've been speaking, there's been struggles like particular things that the Holy Spirit is bringing conviction to in your life. If I was to give you a piece of paper this morning and I said, and, and, and on it I said, write out the things that you really desire. I wish I had. I wish I was. I wish, you know, if you were to list out some of those things, if you could list out those things, that is an opportunity for, for envy, for discontentment right there. And I'm guessing that all of us have things like that in our lives that as I've been talking, maybe there's something that the Holy Spirit's been like, hey, you need to deal with this today. And so I want to encourage you that whatever that is in these next few moments as we get some time to kind of pray and to reflect and to sing, that you guys would really do business with God. That you would say, hey God, thank you for your conviction. Would you forgive me and would you coach me moving forward? Would you help me to live a life that honors you? Don't let us just have this conversation about this thing that is so beneath the surface level without allowing God to really deal with it this morning. He's here. He's present. He wants to work in it and on our hearts. And so let's, let's move towards him in our time of reflection now as we just kind of pray and reflect on what God's doing. Let me pray for us.